Sit back. What NFC East quarterback? Relax. In the movie Ocean's Eleven. Put on your think cap. What prized possession did Danny Ocean get ready for the show? In chemistry, what is the name of the principal? And here's your host. During what year was the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Kevin. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Think Cap Trivia Podcast. My name is Kevin, and it is my pleasure to be your host. For those of you tuning in to this podcast for the first time, let me go over how it's structured. At the beginning of the show, I will pose usually about 10 trivia questions to you and then give you a few moments to think of your answers. Then I'm going to go through each question one by one and give you the answer and the history or data or just some fun facts behind the answer. So this isn't your standard trivia outfit that just gives you a question and an answer. I give you a brief breakdown that will hopefully satisfy all your curious minds out there while also entertaining you with my banter. And again, please don't be frustrated if you don't get many correct. I do tend to choose questions that hedge towards being more difficult because generally they're just more interesting to research and break down and talk about for you guys. My goal is that even if you're not the biggest trivia buff in the world, ThinkCap will become your go-to podcast to supplement your knowledge to help you learn a little bit along your commutes, um, if you're going home, going to school, or even just hanging out at home and want to learn something new. The show is all general trivia topics, so you never know what you're going to get each week. If you are a fan of the show or enjoy what you're about to hear, I ask that you would please recommend the podcast to a friend or to a fellow trivia lover. Getting the word out there about ThinkCap really helps my ability to grow and produce more content for you guys. And to keep up with everything that I do post, you can follow ThinkCap at T-H-I-N-K-K-A-P on Instagram or follow on Facebook with the same name. On those accounts, I post fun facts, historical events, and there's going to be another merch giveaway coming up in the coming weeks, so be on the lookout for that. And with that being said, let me once again welcome you to ThinkCap, and let's get this show started. Okay, so once again, I've got a couple different questions for you today, and what I'm going to do is read each question, give you a couple moments to think about each one, and then go through and break down each question one by one. So sit back and relax, and let me read these questions for you. Question number one. What is the name of the full moon nearest to the autumnal equinox? Once again, what is the name of the full moon nearest to the autumnal equinox? Question number two. In the novel Catch-22, what was the number that Joseph Heller originally used in the title before his editor changed it to 22? Once again, in the novel Catch-22, what was the number that Joseph Heller originally wanted to use in the title before his editor changed it to 22? In 1992, who bought the first ever Hummer that was available for civilian use? Once again, in 1992, who bought the first ever Hummer that was available for civilian use? Question number four, what was the name of the theater in which Abraham Lincoln was shot? Once again, what was the name of the theater in which Abraham Lincoln was shot? Question number five, English philosopher Alfred Wallace was the first 
to use what phrase that is commonly mistaken to be from Charles Darwin? Once again, English philosopher Alfred Wallace was the first to use what phrase that is commonly mistaken to be from Charles Darwin? Question number six, what is the heaviest naturally occurring element? Once again, what is the heaviest naturally occurring element? Question number seven, what NFL team has the longest playoff win drought? Once again, what NFL team has the longest playoff win drought? Who hasn't won a playoff game in the longest amount of time? Question number eight, what was the first animated television show to air for longer than five years on prime time? Once again, what was the first animated television show to air for longer than five years on prime time? Question number nine, the first animal in history to go into orbit around Earth was what? Once again, what was the first animal to go into orbit around Earth? Question number 10, this is our last question of this week's show. Water Lilies was a series of about 250 oil paintings painted by what famous Impressionist artist? Once again, Water Lilies was a series of about 250 oil paintings which was painted by what famous Impressionist artist? All right, so now that I have read all 10 questions for you and I've given you a couple moments to think of your answers, I'm gonna go back, break down each question one by one, read you the question, give you the answer, and give you a little bit of information behind the answer. So let's get started back with question number one. Question number one was, what is the name of the full moon nearest to the autumnal equinox? And your correct answer, is the harvest moon. Harvest moon is the right answer. On average, there are just about 12 complete moon cycles every year. The term harvest moon refers to the full bright moon that occurs closest to the start of autumn. The name dates back to the time before electricity when farmers really depended on the moon's light to harvest their crops late into the night. The moon's light was particularly important during fall when harvests are the largest. And therefore, the name Harvest Moon was created, and it has stuck ever since. One thing that sets the Harvest Moon apart from other full moon names is that it's not associated with a specific month, as some of the other ones are. Instead, the Harvest Moon relates to the timing of the autumnal equinox, which is usually September 22nd or 23rd, with the full moon that occurs nearest to the equinox being the one to take on the name Harvest Moon. This means that the harvest moon can occur in either September or October, depending on how the lunar cycle lines up with the normal Gregorian calendar. This year's harvest moon will occur on the evening of October 1st, and it is a Thursday, so be on the lookout for the brilliant moon in the sky that night. Question number two was, in the novel Catch-22, what was the number that Joseph Heller originally used in the title before his editor changed it to 22? And your correct answer is 
18. Catch 18 was the original name for the work. In 1961, author Joseph Heller finally submitted his manuscript for Catch 18 to his editor, Robert Gottlieb, after working on it for about seven years. The novel is set in World War II, and it employs a non-chronological third-person omniscient narration style to mold its plot. The editor is partially responsible for this, as he taped the pages to his office wall and reconstructed the entire novel, giving more emphasis to the now-famous character Major Major, and instructing Heller to delete entire 60-page sections from his work. But most importantly, Gottlieb wanted to change the title because earlier that year, writer Leon Uris released a war novel entitled Milla 18, so he didn't want any confusion between the two books. So Heller agreed, and Heller and Gottlieb debated amongst themselves and considered and rejected various numbers for the title. They decided 11 wouldn't work because of Ocean's 11. They said 14 was an unfunny number, 26 just didn't feel right. Finally, Gottlieb had a eureka moment and said, it's catch 22, it's funnier than 18. The title stuck, the novel was successful, and a major idiom was born. Because the way the plot of the novel is constructed and the way the characters' stories are intertwined, a Catch-22 would go on to describe a dilemma or difficult circumstance from which there is no escape because of mutually conflicting or dependent conditions. An example of a Catch-22 would be that to get an entry-level job, you need to have at least three years of experience. These two conditions for employment conflict with one another, and they leave a person in a place with no real options on how to proceed. So that's an example of a catch-22, and it's kind of funny to look back at major terms in our language like this and think about how odd they would sound if they were something else. Like, catch-18 just doesn't sound as natural as catch-22 does now. And it's just, it words and phrases like that kind of develop naturally, and they kind of take on lives of their own over time, but... Yeah, it's, it's an interesting piece of uh, history with that, just that Catch-22 very easily could have been Catch-18. Question number three was, in 1992, who bought the first ever Hummer that was available for civilian use? And your correct answer is Arnold Schwarzenegger. Schwarzenegger is the right answer. He, uh, I know we just talked about him a little bit in the last podcast, and here he is again. Um, buying the first ever Hummer on March 22nd of 1983, the Pentagon awarded a production contract of more than $1 billion to AM General Corporation to develop 55,000 high-mobility multi-purpose wheeled vehicles, or HMMWVs. They would be nicknamed Humvees, and they were designed specifically to transport troops and cargo. They were wide and rugged in order to be able to drive over any terrain that they would encounter. And they became popular in pop culture during the 1989 invasion of Panama and the Persian Gulf War in the early 1990s. Images of soldiers on these Humvees kind of just took the minds of uh, Americans, I guess. And Arnold Schwarzenegger was one of these people who became enthralled with the vehicles. But he saw a business opportunity in them. He contacted AM General the heavy automotive manufacturer behind the Humvee to communicate his adoration of the giant vehicle. He was absolutely sure that the Humvee needed to be made available for purchase to regular people, and though the company was initially hesitant, the civilian version of the Humvee, which we now know as the Hummer, 
was introduced into the market in 1992. Schwarzenegger was sure to be the first to get his hands on his version of the massive vehicle. And the hulking military style car, it weighed some 10,000 pounds and it got less than 10 miles per gallon. Although it wasn't a commercial hit at first, it would go on to become a symbol of America's kind of supersized lifestyle. Um, as gas prices increased and people began to focus more on environmentalism though, the gas guzzling vehicle became a target of heavy criticism. And over time demand for the giant product kind of took a downturn because of uh, the environmental factors and just the high price of gas. So they stopped making them for a little bit, but on January 30th of 2020, General Motors released a series of short teaser videos that kind of reveal the return of the Hummer. So be on the lookout for uh, more uh, Hummer advertising, I guess, coming out in the next couple of months because it sounds like, as I'm sure Arnold would be very happy about, the Hummer is coming back. Question number four was, what was the name of the theater in which Abraham Lincoln was shot? And your correct answer is Ford's Theater. Ford's Theater is the right answer. The theater, which opened in August of 1863, is located in Washington, D.C. On the night of April 14, 1865, John Wilkes Booth shot Abraham Lincoln in a booth in the theater while Lincoln was watching a rendition of Our American Cousin, which was a popular comedy show at the time. John Wilkes Booth escaped by jumping out of the booth down to the stage about 12 feet below. Shocked patrons thought that he might be part of the play because as he ran across the stage, he yelled something about the South being avenged. Now there's some debate as to what exactly he said. Some claim he yelled a Latin phrase, while others say he spoke in English, but Either way, he was able to briefly escape the theater after the murder. And while there are different theories about Booth's motivations in assassinating the president, they all pretty much boil down to the fact that he was a Confederate sympathizer who really just wanted to avenge the South. After being shot, Lincoln was rushed across the street to the Peterson house, where he died the next morning as a result of his wounds. Now, the original plan was much wider than just Lincoln's assassination, as Booth conspired with others to eliminate as many of the United States' top officials as possible. George Adzerat was assigned to kill Vice President Andrew Johnson, but he was unable to follow through with his plan. Lewis Powell was the closest to assassinating his target, who was Secretary of State William H. Seward. At the time, Seward was confined to bed rest after suffering a broken jaw, arm, and suffering a concussion after being thrown from his carriage. So he was in his bedroom resting when Powell entered his room and attempted to stab him in the face and throat. However, the jaw splint that, that Seward was wearing to help heal his injuries actually saved his life as Powell failed to puncture his neck and kill him because of the splint. So Seward survived with just scarring on his face and throat. So. While the death of Lincoln obviously would rattle the North, South, and the entire world and is one of the greatest tragedies in American history, the night could have been even darker for the U.S. if the other assailants had succeeded in their missions of throwing off the country's top officials. Question number five was, English philosopher Alfred Wallace was the first to use what phrase that is commonly mistaken to be from Charles Darwin? And your correct answer, that phrase would be survival of the fittest. 
Survival of the fittest is the right answer. Alfred Wallace was born in Wales in 1823, and like his colleague Charles Darwin, Wallace traveled the world observing and collecting different species of animals. He was actually a part of a pretty wild story on the open seas. When 26 days into his voyage home from Brazil, his ship caught fire and sank in the Atlantic Ocean. His entire team and the ship's crew spent 10 days adrift before being picked up by a passing ship, and lucky for them, they got out with their lives, but all of Wallace's notes and samples from that trip were lost at sea. So his odd story would continue, as in 1855, his observations led him to the conclusion that living things change over long periods of time, but he could not explain how or why they evolve. And he pondered this for years, and this is where it's, it's kind of weird again. In 1858, he became ill, and he suffered a fever and had hallucinations. And the halluc in those hallucinations, the answer came to him that species evolve by adapting to their environment. So kind of just a weird, wonky way of coming to that realization. But he then sent Darwin a letter outlining his ideas about evolution, and the two would go on to collaborate on a scientific paper detailing their evidence for evolution. Wallace wrote over 20 books and published more than 700 articles and letters on a wide variety of topics, including his theories of evolution. And while Darwin's 1859 book, On the Origin of Species, reached a huge audience and led to the theory of evolution becoming known as Darwin's theory, there is no doubt that Wallace had a big part in the development of the evolution theory, including the term survival of the fittest. All right, that brings us to question number six, which was, what is the heaviest naturally occurring element? And your correct answer is uranium. Uranium is the right answer. Uranium is a chemical element with the symbol U, and it has an atomic number of 92. A uranium atom, this means, has 92 protons and 92 electrons, of which six are valence electrons. Physically, uh, uranium is kind of a silvery gray looking metal. And it, like I said, it has the highest atomic weight of any naturally occurring elements. Its density is about 70% higher than that of lead and slightly lower than that of gold or tungsten. The discovery of the element was credited to a German chemist, Martin Heinrich Klaproth, while he was working in his experimental laboratory in Berlin in 1789. Uranium is weakly radioactive because all isotopes of uranium are unstable. The half-lives of its naturally occurring isotopes range between 159,200 years and 4.5 billion years. And many contemporary uses of uranium exploit its unique nuclear properties. Uranium-235 is the only naturally occurring fissile isotope, which makes it widely used in nuclear power plants and nuclear weapons. The United States developed an atomic bomb during World War II using uranium. Little Boy, which was the code name of the bomb dropped on Hiroshima, was a uranium-based device whose fissile material was highly enriched uranium. Uranium is a fascinating element due to its unique properties and is undoubtedly historically significant because of its use, wide use, in nuclear technology. Alright, question number seven was, what NFL team has the longest playoff win drought? And your correct answer is the Cincinnati Bengals. The Bengals, 
They last won a playoff game on January 6, 1991, which was a 41-14 victory against the Houston Oilers at Riverfront Stadium in the AFC wildcard game. They would go on to lose to the Los Angeles Raiders one week later in the divisional round. The Bengals have lost eight postseason games since their win against the Oilers, and it has been 29 seasons since their last win. The team has not won a Super Bowl in its 52 years of existence, and I don't want this to be all digs at the Bengals, but things are certainly looking up for the franchise, as they've got some great young talent on the team, and the best quarterback in college football history now is their signal caller. So hopefully things will turn around for the fans in Cincinnati and they can get that playoff win they've been waiting for sooner rather than later. All right, question number eight this week was, what was the first animated television show to air for longer than five years on prime time? And your correct answer is the Flintstones. The Flintstones is the right answer. The earliest primetime animation show is The Flintstones, created by William Hanna and Joseph Barbara. It aired for the first time on the ABC television network on September 30th of 1960. The cartoon was based on a contemporary take on suburban life, but set in the Stone Age. It ran for six years until April 1996, but obviously it was hugely popular and is still rerun on television even today. It preceded the cartoon set in the inverse future universe, the Jetsons, by two years. So the Flintstones was out, and then two years later, the Jetsons started to make its run. And the Flintstones, it, it was the most financially successful and longest-running network animated television series for three decades until the Simpsons came along in 1989 and would outlast it as they are still making new episodes and new seasons of The Simpsons. All right, question number nine was, the first animal in history to go into orbit around Earth was a what? What kind of animal was it? And your answer, it was a dog. A dog was the first animal to go into orbit. On November 3rd of 1957, at the very beginnings of the space age, the Soviet Union launched Sputnik 2 into orbit. Sputnik 2 weighed about 1,200 pounds, significantly more than the original Sputnik, which was the first satellite to ever be put into orbit. Even after reaching orbit, Sputnik 2 remained attached to its booster rocket. Because of how heavy it was, the Soviets hurried to get Sputnik 2 into orbit after seeing how successful the original Sputnik program was, especially for propaganda value. They decided that their next trick would be to send an animal into orbit, electing to create a crude animal habitat on board of the second iteration of the satellite. A dog named Laika was put on board and became the first animal to orbit Earth. Unfortunately, due to the lack of adequate development time and the rush to get this thing into the air, the Soviets never made any provisions designed to recover Laika, so the environmental control system was not engineered for sustaining the dog's life, and it's likely that Laika only survived the first few hours after reaching orbit. However, the images of the dog on board, ready to take flight into space, galvanized the United States into organizing their space program. Seeing a live animal launched into space made the American aerospace engineers realize that a space race was coming and that the winner would be the first country to get a man into outer space. 
As far as Sputnik 2 goes, it burned up on re-entry on April 14th of 1958, and the Soviet Union wouldn't orbit any more animals for about three years after that, electing to take their time and develop methods of returning their onboard life safely back to Earth in preparation for human spaceflight that would really uh, change and shape that this era for years to come. All right, and question number 10, which is our last question this week, was Water Lilies, a series of about 250 oil paintings, was painted by what famous Impressionist artist? And your correct answer is Claude Monet. Monet is the right answer. Claude Monet was a French painter who lived from 1840 to 1962. He was the founder of the French Impressionist painting style, with the term Impressionism coming from the title of one of his works, Impression Sunrise. So he literally had a painting that was named Impression Sunrise, and his entire style was so encapsulated by that one painting that they decided to call it Impressionism. So pretty cool there, and he had a passion for painting the French countryside landscape and other perceptions of nature. One of his most famous projects was the Water Lilies paintings. As stated in the question, this was a collection of about 250 paintings by Monet, not just one. He completed these pretty much over the last 30 years of his life. Monet worked hard on remodeling his home's landscapes and gardens to better inspire his work. He wanted to create the absolutely perfect place for reflection and inspiration. To achieve the perfect garden, he went so far as importing his water lilies from Egypt and South America. So they weren't even natural to his uh, region of France. He imported these things just because he loved how beautiful they looked. He was actually quoted as saying, quote, I'm good for nothing except painting and gardening. He also was a sort of handyman, I guess, because he built his famous Japanese-styled bridge himself in 1899. After its completion, he painted the structure 17 times that very year, focusing on the changes in lighting and weather conditions in his oasis. And I'm sure if you know what the water lilies are, or you can probably, if you've seen these paintings, you can probably imagine the red Japanese-style bridge that he had in his garden. It really was very beautiful. And he was an absolute perfectionist about his work, as evidenced by an episode in 1908 in which Monet destroyed 15 of his water lilies paintings right before they were to be exhibited at a gallery in Paris. He was so unhappy with how that they looked that he decided to destroy them rather than have them go on public display. Nowadays though, all of his works are seen as pieces of artistic history with one of Monet's 1919 paintings entitled Pond with Water Lilies selling for over 80 million dollars at a 2008 auction in new york the highest price of any from his esteemed water lilies collection all right now that brings us to the end of our show if you have made it this far i thank you for hanging out with me and i hope that you learned a little bit if you enjoyed the show i would ask you to please review like or subscribe and follow if you can any feedback from you guys on the product is huge and really helps us to take this podcast to the next level in addition like i said before you can follow along at thinkcap t-h-i-n-k-k-a-p on instagram or facebook i really love to hear what you guys want to learn and having interactions learning about more trivia or fun facts or anything like that so if you ever have a trivia question that you would like featured on an episode or if you want more 
questions pertaining to a certain topic, feel free to leave a comment or send a DM on Instagram to ThinkCap, and I will be happy to include that in a future episode. So once again, I will thank you for listening. I will catch you next week and take care.